Hello, and welcome to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Today, I've got something special for you in the form of an announcement. And the announcement is this, that yesterday I finished the manuscript for my first book, my first ever completed book, I should say. I've started at least one other book and then made plans for others. But this is the first book I have ever finished writing in my life. It's been a major bucket list goal for me. I hope to write other books in the future, but this is at least one that is now finished. The title of the book is, And This Is Why We Homeschool. I've been working on it for just over one year. It was November 21st, 2019, that I created the folder in which I put all of the documents on my OneDrive, my cloud storage. And yesterday was November 28th, 2020. So that is just one year and about a week since I first started working on this book. And I'm so excited about it. I really, really am. I am hopeful that this book is helpful to people who are considering homeschooling and they're not sure they can do it and they want to hear an argument. They've got kind of a fuzzy idea in their heads why they want to homeschool and what the reasons are. Maybe they're having a difficult time convincing their spouse and this could be a book that they hand their spouse. Maybe they're having a difficult time winning friends and family over and this could be a book that they hand their friends and family to explain the reasons why they're thinking about homeschooling. And maybe this is a book for people that are homeschooling and they want some encouragement. They want something to hand to family and friends who are skeptical. They have decided to do it, but they're trying to bring other people alongside so that they can have an extended support network. My hope is that this ends up being a resource, particularly for Christians, but not just Christians, to explain why from a faith-based uh, rationale. Is it a good thing? Why is it perhaps even a necessary thing that they should homeschool? And I'm coming at it from the standpoint of why my wife and I homeschool our seven kids. Not all seven are of school age yet, but our intention is to homeschool all seven up until college. And living in Colorado, there's a lot of opportunities now for secondary education, post-secondary education, college, our kids can take classes at the local community college, for instance, and that'll count for high school credits. And also, it will be tuition-free if they get certain grades, if they pass those classes with a certain grade point average. But having made the decision ourselves a long time ago that we were going to homeschool our children, this has been a book in the making for really all of my life, honestly, for all of my marriage, certainly, for all of the years of being a parent, which is uh, almost as many years as we've been uh, married. This has been a book I have had cooking in my brain for at least 14 years, but uh, arguably a lot longer. And I'm so excited. I, I really am. The manuscript being finished is a huge landmark for me. It seems like with my way of communicating, I don't always 
uh, organize my thoughts. And sometimes that is good because it allows things to happen organically. It allows ideas to be cultivated and to grow without being forced. And I don't like having an outward external structure imposed on my work because I feel like that taints somewhat the objectivity of it. Why am I accepting this structure? Is that natural? Is that the way that this information should be organized? I agonize over that and I feel like it distracts me so often from being able to convey what it is that I want to convey or consider and uh, come to the conclusions that maybe I need to come to. And so it was a little bit out of my comfort zone, a lot of bit out of my comfort zone when I sat down a year ago to outline this book. But I realized very quickly that there were four broad categories that I wanted to tackle this subject through. The first being what I've turned into the section one of my book, which is parents and children. Let's build a basic philosophical foundation with regards to family dynamics, with regards to what we do with our children. How do we perceive our responsibility in light of the fact that we are parents if we have children? And of course, this is a book primarily aimed at, targeted at an audience of parents, whether they are homeschooling now, whether they're considering homeschooling, whether their children are considering homeschooling or are homeschooling. I want to tackle this from the standpoint of if you are in possession of children, if you have a family with children who need to be educated, you are a parent. If you're adopting children, if you're fostering children, if you are naturally having children the old-fashioned way, you are a parent. And so what do you do about that? Whose responsibility is your child's education? And a little bit later in this episode, I'm going to read one of the chapters as a kind of preview and as a kind of taste test, an appetizer, if you will, for the rest of the book. But that is section one. Section one is parents and children, whose responsibility is your child's education, uh, whose responsibility is your child's well-being in general, but education very much falls within that, both in terms of their present uh, health, happiness, holiness. As your child is in need of learning and education and instruction and training and discipline and all of these things, all these good things, they need those things in the present, but they also are going to need to have had those instilled in them once they grow up, once they become adults. And as I reference throughout the book, the Proverbs tell us that we should train up a child in the way that they should go so that when they are older, they will not depart from it. We should be educating our children. We should be instilling in them good character so that when they become adults, it is uh, already there. The discipline is already there. Once you become an adult, if you don't already possess discipline, it can be a little difficult to acquire it. It can be difficult to break habits, and it can be more challenging once you have bad habits and bad attitudes and bad ways of looking at the world and your life and other people and God. It can be a lot more challenging to change those down the road the older we get. We know that that is proven by science when it comes to language. We know that it's proven by science when it comes to really anything. Our brains are much more plastic the younger we are. That's why it's easier to learn new things when we're younger. 
And we get more solidified, more cemented, more uh, rigid in our thinking the older we get, unless we cultivate a kind of open-mindedness, a good kind of open-mindedness when we're younger, a good kind of uh, receptivity to ideas and to correction. And uh, correction doesn't necessarily mean that somebody punished you for thinking the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. But correction just means that you were misinformed or you were on the wrong path, you were misguided, you were uh, misjudging, whatever, right? Whatever the miss is, you were not correct. And so being open to correction means that you want to be more correct, even if that means uh, admitting that you were not as correct as you could have hoped to be before. So section two, moving on through the book, there are four sections in total. Each one has between four and five chapters. Uh, section one is four chapters. Section two is five chapters. Section three is four chapters. Section four is five chapters at present. That could change. Right now, this is the manuscript. It's the rough draft, if you will. And when I send it off here, hopefully today, it is a Sunday, I'd like to come up with a list of email addresses and people that I want to get feedback from. I want to have uh, critical and constructively critical um, ideas from what's working, what isn't working, what's missing, what is present that maybe is a distraction that needs to go. Uh, when I send this off to people, my hope is that they come back with uh, ideas of that sort that make the book better because I want it to be as good as possible. That's part of why I took just a little over a year to write it. I honestly could have cranked this out a lot quicker if I weren't so interested keenly in it being as good as possible. There's a, a balance to strike between doing something excellently and just getting it done. Things might not be perfect from a human standpoint, but at a certain point you just have to say that's good enough and a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. I really struggled, especially over the summer, as 2020 featured uh, COVID-19 and schools were closed and as many as 40% of American parents by statistics that I saw repeated in many places were considering homeschooling their children and a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing came from the intellectual elites, some from Harvard, about homeschooling being dangerous and how most American parents are not equipped, they're not uh, engaged, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, Colorado's governor, Jared Polis, came out and said that most parents don't know how to homeschool their kids and you shouldn't think that you can do it. Just one more reason that I really do not care for, I do not approve of, I do not support Governor Jared Polis. I think he's consistently wrong. He has a consistently flawed outlook on the world. But uh, Governor Polis was by no means the only uh, establishment politician or, um, you know, talking head who had critical things to say about homeschooling in 2020 as uh, almost half of American parents started thinking, you know what, maybe this is just crazy town and the public education system. We see all of these activist teachers who uh, in Los Angeles, for instance, said, we are not coming back to school. It's not safe for us to come back to school because supposedly 
uh, COVID until you defund the police. Now, what does defunding the police have to do with being safe from COVID? Nothing. Bupkis. If you were keeping score at home, the answer is zero. Zero. You receive no points. Uh, <laughs> I award you no points. And we are all now dumber for having listened to what you just said. The teachers unions in many places for many years have been activists. They are progressive. They are of the left. And they are a lot of what's wrong with American public education. But I don't want to dwell too much on that in this episode. I get into it in section two of my book. I have five chapters, uh, critical, I think fairly critical, and not just raking them over the coals, not just being malicious, not just being uh, mean-spirited, but I think fairly criticizing public education. And I want to be clear that my reason for criticizing public education is not because I just want to beat up on the establishment. It's not that I have an axe to grind against the status quo just for the sake of being anti-establishment. I criticize public education because I really, truly, genuinely, deeply, truly, madly, deeply, as the song went, believe that American public education is hurting our children, it is hurting our adults, it is hurting our country, and by extension, it's hurting the world. It's based on a faulty premise, a faulty view of man, a faulty view of God, a faulty view of the world. It is dangerous, it is bad news, it is destructive, and it's unnecessary, right? If it's all those things other than unnecessary, then what is the difference between it and a volcano, right? Volcanoes can be dangerous and they can be destructive, but that doesn't make them unnecessary and it doesn't mean that there's anything you could really do to stop them, right? God can stop a volcano if he wants. You pretty much have to just get out of the way. It's not up to you to stop volcanoes from erupting. You just have to get out of their path and go do your own thing. American public education is not so. This is something that we made. This is something we built collectively through our actions and our interactions, through our statements and our uh, lack of statements, our lack of speaking truth to power and objecting, or our unwillingness to go the whole way. If we did say something, if we did do something to try and reform public education in America, we gave up too easy, or we resigned ourselves that this is just the way that it is. It's an imperfect system, and we just have to accept that. I don't accept that. You shouldn't accept that. We shouldn't accept that. And so I criticize public education because the people that are so damned uh, committed to us just sticking to it need to reform it. And I think, honestly, it's beyond reform at this point. It just needs to be abolished. The American public schools need to go away. They need to be replaced with private schools. I think private schools do far better jobs. And if the resources are there, if the money is there in the community, then have it be a private school and have it be actually, truly, really private control, local control over the uh, education of our children. It should be as local as possible. It should not be based in Washington. It should not be based in your state capital. It should be based in your local community, especially in the parents. Ultimately, I make that case in section one of my book, the responsibility for your child's education lies squarely with you as a parent. And so therefore, as local as possible is 
how we should be handling our children's education, ideally in the home, but at least in the local community. The local church should be supportive. Your local community of parents who are neighbors, who are family, who are friends, they should be chiming in. They should be weighing in. They should be helping. You've heard it said, it takes a village to raise a child. It actually does not. That's chapter one of the book. But section two, I deal with American public education and I criticize it because it needs to be critiqued. It needs to be criticized toward the end of giving our children a better education. That's the big idea. If your goal, first and foremost, is to defend public schools, you need to remember what they are there for. They are not an end unto themselves. For the teachers' unions, they're not an end unto themselves. They are a means to the end of promoting their ideology or uh, you know, having great cush benefits or whatever, feeling very important. That should not be our ambition to support public schools so that we maintain the status quo, screw the status quo as far as I'm concerned, if the status quo is not working, if it's not cutting it, if it's not getting it done. And if there is a better idea, in the absence of a better idea, sometimes you just have to accept that the perfect should not be the enemy of the good, but better is always better. If you can have better rather than good or rather than awful, then why not have better, especially where our children are concerned? Do it for the children. Anyway, section three. Section three of the book is on homeschooling. So I talk more specifically, not about criticizing public schools, but about homeschooling and how do you do this thing? And honestly, I think more helpful to the people that are considering uh, homeschooling their children who have not done it before, it needs to be the case that we prepare our minds. We cultivate our minds to receive this idea for the, for the plant to grow from a seedling. The soil has to be prepared. You have to break up hard soil. You have to pull the weeds. You have to fertilize. You've got to water. You've got to do all of these things before that seed can have even a decent shot at growing into a healthy plant. And so section three builds off of section one. Section one, I talk about parents and children. Section three, I talk about what the big idea is. I want you to wrap your mind around homeschooling. I've criticized public schools. I have told you that your child's education is your responsibility. That doesn't necessarily mean that homeschooling is the way to go. And so that's what I try and argue in section three is that you should homeschool for XYZ reasons. You should overcome your insecurity because that is the biggest impediment. You feeling insecure. I can't do it. I don't think I'm up for it. I don't think that I want to risk ruining my child. I don't want to risk uh, giving them a crappy education. You know, maybe a not ideal, not a perfect education is, uh, you know, regrettable, but I just don't think I'm cut out to do this myself. Well, not so fast. Maybe, just maybe, you should consider where that insecurity comes from. And is it reasonable? Is it fair? Is it true that you're not capable of doing this thing that might just be the best thing for your children, your family, your community, your church, and the country? I talk about freedom and how the freedom of homeschooling is terrifying for many people. And that is the reason why they don't do it. The freedom to them looks overwhelming 
There are so many options for curriculum. There are so many options for how they might schedule their day and change things up and approach this that it just boggles their mind and they overload and they lock up. But there's another way to look at the freedom here. The freedom to homeschool your child is the best thing about homeschooling your child. The freedom to do it in a way that fits your child's special personality, their special interests, their special needs. And I don't say special needs to suggest that there's something wrong with you. Every child has special needs. Every child. We just highlight certain special needs that maybe are more uncommon, and we pay attention to those. We give uh, certain teachers this title of special needs. All children have special needs. Whether we recognize them or not is the question. And if we're not recognizing their special needs and how they are uniquely suited to certain kinds of being taught, certain ways of being taught, certain subjects, if we don't recognize those things, then we miss out. And we don't help our children to reach their full potential. And we don't allow education to be the joyous, exciting, fulfilling, happy thing that it can be. And it can be. We think of school as a drudgery so much so because we have accepted this status quo which makes it miserable. And the reason it's miserable is because it's so often unproductive and tiresome and toilsome and aggravating. But if it could be not those things... If it could be more like School of Rock, for instance, let's say. School of Rock, a Jack Black singing math is a very fine thing. Get off your ath, let's do some math, 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 math. You know, if we can make it fun like that, School of Rock, where our education rocks, where we're engaging our children in a way that's fun. It's fun because they're interested, they're engaged in the subject because it matches their interests, it matches their personality. We're coming to them where they're at, we're giving them individual attention. If we think of it in those terms, that all of the sudden, homeschooling and the freedom that is inherent to homeschooling can be a very, very exciting pursuit. I also talk about you and your posterity and why the formation of good character needs to be central to education. So much of educational philosophy has gotten away from that. And you can credit the lack of virtue in broader society with the way children are educated, by and large, in this country. Children are not educated to give any thought to virtue, to give any thought to character. What is character? What is virtue? We can't know. That's what our status quo is telling us in this country, and it's been telling us for far too long to the point that we've forgotten that character used to be central to education, and it needs to be central again. We need to make education great again, and the way we can make education great again is by remembering that character formation is critical. It is critically important to education, and it does not happen accidentally. Sometimes you may not be paying attention, and it might happen in, inadvertently, but in order to be successful, you can't just be spraying and praying. You can't just be firing your shots indiscriminately and hoping one of them hits the target. You know, you've got a class of hundreds of kids, and maybe one or two of them come out with some good character formed by osmosis from being around people that had good character. But if you are thinking of homeschooling your child, I want you to think about how the formation of good character in your child 
will set them up for more success in life. It will set them up to be people of integrity, to be people of conviction in a good way and not just be adrift, not just fall for anything, to not become suckers, to not become vulnerable and easy pickings for unscrupulous people, but to be the change that we need to see in the world. So I talk about that. I also talk about how homeschooling is easier than it looks. That's not to say that it's easy, but it is easier than it looks on the outside. If you're looking at homeschooling and you're thinking, oh, I could never do that. That looks so hard. I use the analogy of my daughter, Evelyn, cleaning her room, or rather groaning and gnashing her teeth about cleaning her room. She thinks it's impossible. She thinks it's too hard. She thinks it'll never happen. She'll never never be finished. She needs help. She can't do it. She thinks of it that way because she's looking at it as one big elephant she needs to eat in one bite. And that's where someone a little wiser, a little more experienced comes alongside. In my case, it's me or my wife. We come alongside our daughter, Evelyn, who is seven, by the way. So that comes with the territory. She's a child. She sometimes is childish about things. That's okay. That's why she has parents. That's why God gave her parents. But we come alongside her and we tell her, no, 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 sweetie, you can't think of this as one big elephant that you eat in one bite. You got to break it up into smaller parts. You got to make it more manageable. Break this task into picking up the dirty clothes, putting away the clean clothes, picking up the trash, picking up your toys, picking up your books, uh, making your bed, vacuuming, put all of these things into a pot, put them into a compartment in your mind, and then approach them one by one so that each compartment, each uh, part of what it is that needs to happen here, as you finish it, it builds confidence, and then you're ready to do the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. So I talk about that, chapter 13 of section 3, homeschooling. And then section 4, I get into more specifically and more focusedly, if that's a word, I like to make up new words, by the way. Why not? Somebody's got to. Uh, I get into, in section four, opposition. And I want to deal specifically with opposition that comes from your extended family. I want to deal with opposition that comes from sometimes your local church. I want to deal with opposition from your circle of friends and acquaintances. And then finally, I leave off dealing with the opposition that may be inside of you to this. Because honestly, honest to God, it is not your job to convince every last person in your life that this is the right decision before you set about to doing it. You don't have to persuade everybody else. If that's what's holding you back, let it go. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in Yahweh is safe. And we need to look at this objectively, put aside what other people think and feel about it for a second, just the facts of the situation, what are your options, how are you going to educate your child, and if homeschooling is legitimately the healthiest, happiest, holiest option for your child and for your family, or if it can be through work, through effort, through diligence, through applying yourself consistently to that task, if it can be, then that's it. That's all you and your spouse need to know. And other people, they may be persuaded in the end. They may 
come alongside you. They may support you. They may affirm you or they may not. That's beside the point. Do the right thing because it's the right thing. Even if everybody else is going the other direction, even if nobody else understands, do the right thing because it's the right thing. Ultimately, that will not only provide a better example for your child to follow as they see you doing the right thing despite opposition, despite challenges to overcome, it'll also form better character in you. And that is very important. That is very valuable. That is great treasure that waits at the end of this rainbow for you as you face trials of many kinds that can develop perseverance. If the testing of your faith results in your faith being proven purer, more complete, if it develops perseverance in you, then you will be complete. It will finish you. It will complete you. It will refine you. So anyway, that is roughly, very quickly, very briefly, the outline of my book. I've got 18 chapters as it stands at present. The manuscript contains 35,353 words. That's 105% of my initial word count. That is just a little bit more than what I had planned at the outset. A year ago, what I did was, I'll explain this because... Why not, right? It's interesting to me. I've never done this before. I don't know how this is done. I just decided to do it this way, and uh, I'll share it with you. And then we'll read a selection from my book. But what I did at the outset, knowing that structure is hard for me, I am not necessarily good at following my own advice. I had to take myself by the hand, for instance, in breaking this elephant up into smaller, more manageable tasks. And so what I did was some variation on exactly what I tell my daughter when she's cleaning her room. I broke this big task of writing a book into four smaller pieces. These four smaller pieces, I decided at the outset I needed to cover these categories. I made sections, and I planned those sections, and then I thought, okay, if I'm going to have, let's say, four, we'll just pick a number, four chapters to each section. What do I need to cover in each section? What do I want to cover in each section? And so I thought in chapter titles. I thought in chapter titles first, and then I created one word document that was just the outline. And I made it all fancy and good looking with you know formatting and a theme. And I've got the font that I like that's attractive to me. And I've got colors and I've got various sizes. I like gold. It's kind of a a feeling of happiness, according to color psychology, when you look at the color gold or yellow, creates feelings of happiness. And so I knew that this book might get difficult. It might get to be a challenge as I wrote it. And so I thought, I'm going to use yellow for my headings and for my titles and things like that. Anywhere I'm going to put color in here, I'm going to make it gold or kind of a deep bronze or variations on that so that I am planning ahead to cheer myself up when this proves more difficult or more challenging than would maybe be productive when I need to continue on, I need to press on. Uh, If you will, to be trite, I chose happiness. Uh, I chose to be happy in advance so that when it got difficult, when it got maybe a little bit uh, negative, right, where I'm criticizing things that might get me in trouble, might offend people that I know, might upset them, it might cause them to distance themselves from me, 
the public at large, if this really takes off, if it becomes a bestseller, I'm going to get criticism. I'm going to get backlash. I'm going to become the focal point for a lot of criticism myself as people start nitpicking things that I said and, and all of that. I decided to put a color code into my outline so that I would not get discouraged. I would not let those things get me down. Don't let the bastards get you down. So damn the torpedoes, my outline started with four sections, parents and children, American public education, homeschooling, and opposition, section one, two, three, four. And then within that, I came up with titles like It Takes a Village, Wards of the State, Better a Millstone, Whose Responsibility Childhood Education Is, Education is Blood Sport, Conducive Environments, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I won't read them all for you. I don't want to give it away. But uh, I wrote these chapter titles. And then underneath each chapter title that I used the heading formatting for, I wrote just a quick italicized sentence to be a writing prompt for me down the way. This is going to need to be a full chapter, but first off, I want to record the big idea that I have at the outset for this chapter. A chapter title is fine. What was I going to write here again? Oh yeah, here's my writing prompt. Here's my one sentence to get me started once I get to that point, because it might be a while. I didn't know how long this book was going to take. I was hoping I was going to get it finished fairly quickly. Maybe a year is fairly quickly, especially given how 2020 has been and the fact that we uh, had so many adjustments this year for our family besides just uh, you know 2020 COVID stuff. We had a lot of personal things that happened. It was a busy, busy year getting adjusted to Colorado. But I planted seeds, or rather, I set seeds aside in my outline so that I could plant them into the book itself, into the Word document. I have a separate Word document just for the book. I have one for the outline so that I can have that up on one monitor as I'm writing the book to refresh my memory so I don't have to scroll all the way up to the beginning of the book to see my outline again. I don't have to write it down and find a piece of paper and, oh, there's coffee spilled on it because one of the kids bumped me. Put it in a Word document. I've got it up. I can look at it, plant that seed right into the Word document that is the book, right? I've got, and this is why we homeschool the outline. And I've got another document that is, and this is why we homeschool the book. So I would paste, copy, paste, from the outline to the book, as I start the chapter, that little seed, that little one sentence writing prompt, and then I would go from there and I would write the rest of the chapter out. And then if I was trying to refresh my memory, okay, what was the chapter preceding this? And how am I tying into that? What's the next chapter going to be? Am I leading into that as I need to be? I would glance over as I'm writing to refresh my memory. And then I did another thing, which I don't know if other people do this. I like Excel spreadsheets. I took a big dumb class or two in college online to make me supposedly fluent at uh, Microsoft uh, Office's Excel program. So I like spreadsheets. I like, you know, telling myself at least <laughs> that I should have spent that money. That was a wise investment. It was worth something. So what I did was I used my abilities at Excel to create 
a tracking spreadsheet, if you will, for my progress with the book. And so I built this spreadsheet and I've got a column for the section and chapter names. I've got a column for word count, actual, and I've got a column for word count budgeted, if you will, like a, a goal. Like this is the word count that I want for this section. This is the word count that I want for the chapter. This is the word count that I want for the book at the very bottom. I've got my total row. And so then what I did, because I, I thought, well, how long should my book be? I've never written a book. How long are most books? I don't know. I mostly listen to audiobooks, so I think in hours, but you can't necessarily translate that into something that's trackable, that's measurable. And so I did a quick Google search and I looked up how long are most nonfiction books. And so from that, I came up with just a nice round number, 30,000. I thought, okay, 30,000 words, that'll be my goal. If it ends up being longer or shorter, okay, so what? But I'll shoot for 30,000. We'll see how it goes. Then I reverse engineered. If it's 30,000 words long, and if I have four chapters, initially it was four chapters, by the way, four chapters in each section for a total of 16 chapters. If that's going to be the case, then how long should each section be? Well, that gave me the number 7,500. 30,000 divided four ways is 7,500. And then within each section, how long should each chapter be? If I have four chapters per section, well, that'll be about 1,875 words. That actually works out rather nicely because my typical uh, writing for the blog has been between 1,000 and 2,000 words, usually closer to 2,000 words. So 1,875 words is just perfect. That's about how long my usual sit down, take a big, smooth golf swing, follow through the whole way, and uh, you know, crank out an article. That's usually about the length of a blog post. And it was fairly natural, uh, accordingly, to write a chapter at a time with that sort of approach. And so once I had a word count goal in mind for each section, for each chapter, and for the book as a whole, I then created another column for uh, a kind of graphical representation where as I make progress, if I write everything that's in my mind so far for a chapter, that might be five paragraphs and then I want to stop and think or I come up with a little bit of writer's block, if you will. What I did was I highlighted everything that I had written for that chapter so far. And then I looked at the word count at the bottom of Microsoft Word. And then I plugged that into my spreadsheet in the column for word count actual. That then gave me my percent because I've got a column for what percent each chapter and each section and the book as a whole was of the total, the total that I had set in my mind and set in the spreadsheet as my goal. And so I've got a little bar that fills up on the cells for each chapter, for each section, and then for the book as a whole, filling up to 100%. And so that was gratifying. That was another way that I decided on the front end, hey, this is hard for me. This is difficult for me to uh, keep myself going when I structure things, doing something long like this. 
I'm going to get distracted. I'm going to want to write about something else for a change every now and then. I'm going to want to do something else. Things are going to happen. Things are going to come up that derail me for a time. I'm going to hit certain snags when I write certain chapters where I know that I need to say something about this, but I'm just having a hard time coming up with the words. This spreadsheet really did help me a lot in thinking forward, in seeing the progress that I was making. Hey, look, it's measurable and I'm measuring it. And I resolved at the front end to measure this so that I would uh, continue on. I would continue making progress steadily as I went. And I wouldn't just think, oh, this is taking forever, right? This is never going to end. Oh, like my daughter, Evelyn, at seven years old, cleaning her room. Oh, this is going to take forever. No, nope. This is an elephant. I broke it up into four parts. And then within each of those four parts, I broke it up into another four parts. And then within each of those sixteenths, I made a way of measuring how close to 100% I was on each chapter as I went. If I wrote five paragraphs and I got stuck, I looked at the word count. I added that to the spreadsheet. Oh, hey, look, I'm 33% of the way finished with this chapter. Isn't that cool? Right. So that helped me a lot. Anyway, enough about that. I want to read for you chapter four of, and this is why we homeschool. And the title of the chapter is Whose Responsibility Childhood Education Is? And this chapter resides at the very end of section one, Parents and Children. Let's go. Chapter four, Whose Responsibility Childhood Education Is? If the good Lord wanted our children raised by others, why did he not have them born to those people? The line of reasoning inherent to this question is why my wife and I ruled out daycare and public education early on. All other things being equal, we just could not see the point in having our progeny carted off for someone else to care for most of the day if we were able to do it as well or better ourselves. But before I expand on that, you can stop me right there. What about working parents? What about extenuating circumstances? What if both husband and wife must either work or attend school? Sometimes it cannot be helped. I am being terribly unfair. What else are many parents supposed to do with their children besides send them to daycare and the public schools while they work during the day? An obvious answer, at least to me, is that one spouse or the other could quit their job or stay home with the children and teach them. This answer seems especially obvious because that is what my wife and I did, and many other married couples have done this also. But then sometimes it is not possible, and I know that. A single-parent home cannot typically afford this, and many American marriages end in divorce. So what about the children from those homes? Also, sometimes the husband or wife has a major illness or dies, and the other has no choice but to work. If you are in one of those situations, you have my sympathy rather than my condemnation, and I genuinely mean that. But this book is not intended to serve as a comprehensive guide for absolutely everyone to navigate absolutely every possible combination of factors. My intention is not and never has been to write an all-encompassing encyclopedia of parenting and education, so much as to get at the universal truths and principles of righteousness and wisdom and to unpack these for you, the reader, to whatever extent God's grace enables me to. But perhaps even that seems rather lofty. 
Here I am, placing myself on a pedestal, handing down divine precepts from on high to you and yours. Let me be clear. I do not know everything, even where what I do know is concerned. I do not always understand the full implications of what all I know, but I know and understand that. And moreover, I know that regardless oft deceiving appearances, we are all in that same boat of having incomplete data and being flawed human beings. But then that does not stop other people from writing books, now does it? And if it does not stop others, I fail to see why it should stop me. No, also, my family is not perfect. We do not have it all together. There is the occasional bickering and complaining, the now and then loss of harmony in our abode, just like in everyone else's. We are human, fortunate for you and I that knowing, imparting, and applying universal truth and goodness hinges not on my family or me having it all together. On the contrary, it is precisely because we are familiar with our limitations and human frailties that we must all the more take care in the decisions we make, particularly where our and our family's spiritual orientation is concerned. Not all choices we might make are equally virtuous, wise, or expedient. The last thing I want to suggest to you, the reader, is some flattering nonsense to the contrary, that it does not matter how you choose to raise or educate your child. It is not all the same. All choices are not equally valid. Rather, there is an undeniable disparity not only between public, private, and home education in general, but between the many different subroutines one might choose within each of these major kinds of schooling. But here is the unifying, equalizing truth. Whichever of these you as a parent choose for your child, your child's education is first and foremost your responsibility. That is the big idea here. In other words, if you, like most American moms and dads, choose to send your son or daughter to public schools, your duty to ensure they are forming good character and a good understanding of the essential subjects does not lessen, not even a little. The inclusion of teachers and principals and other administrative officials into the mix does not diffuse your obligation, nor does it even water it down. At the end of the day, the buck still stops with you. So pay attention. Do your research. Think through the ramifications carefully. Be engaged, and only all the more if you have entrusted your children to someone else to teach and to train. Diffusion of responsibility is a topic that has fascinated me ever since I took Dr. Furman's general psychology course at Cedarville University back in 2006. For those unfamiliar, the concept is simple. In any group of strangers where no recognized leader or authority figure is present, each individual within the group is less likely to recognize an emergency or seize the initiative, intervene, and offer assistance. This becomes increasingly the case the larger the group of strangers gets. In practical terms, someone out of a group of five people on a sidewalk is more likely to help someone drowning or choking or having a heart attack or seizure or being attacked by a mugger or whatever, compared with someone out of a crowd of, say, 10, 20, 50 people or more. What happens is that each individual in the group looks around at every other person in the group waiting for someone else to take initiative. No one elected them to be the leader. Surely someone else must be in charge. But if everyone remains passive in the event of an emergency, the fact 
of everyone else around each individual doing nothing serves to reinforce the passivity of each individual. In other words, the passivity of the group becomes a self-feeding sort of paralysis. Non-intervention then serves to reinforce and build on itself, making more and more secure each individual in the sense that no one else is too worked up about whatever is going on. Therefore, why should they be? But it is not only a matter of individuals being shy about assuming a mantle of leadership when such has not been offered to them. It is also the fact that the larger the group gets, the less individual responsibility or, more rightly, blame any one person within the group feels they will bear in the event of a worst-case scenario. Suppose there is an emergency and someone is maimed or even killed while a large crowd of onlookers remains passively disengaged. What is one-fifth of that guilt? How about one-tenth, one-twentieth, or one-fiftieth? The smaller the share of the guilt each person might feel if the unassisted person is seriously hurt or dies, the less likely each individual is to put themselves out there and engage in helping behavior. This is closely related to the earlier thing I wrote about experiments involving elevators. The psychological pressure to conform to what those around us are doing is incredibly strong and can only be overcome by deliberate intentionality. Yet we must recognize the numbing effect of non-action and ambivalence on the part of those around us and somehow rise above it to see things as they are and respond appropriately. Part of how we do this is by reprogramming ourselves to assume a default position of aggression and assertiveness in the most positive sense of both qualities. And when I say that, I do not mean we become hostile or unkind to other people. On the contrary, we proactively attack problems instead of passively waiting for circumstances to befall us. And when, despite our best intentions, plans, and efforts, bad things happen, we take responsibility for tackling what can be done to improve the situation and then help people to the best of our abilities. How this relates to children and education is rather straightforward, I think. But in case it is less so for you, the reader, than it is for me, I will be more explicit. The problem with parents not being ultimately responsible for their children's upbringing and education is that it begs the question of who else would be. If not the mother and father, whose job is it to ensure your son and daughter learn what they need to know to live a happy, healthy, holy, and productive life once they reach adulthood? Let us say it is the school's responsibility. You must pick one. Say it is the job of the teacher. There are many teachers who each play a supporting role in the course of a typical kindergarten through 12th grade public education in America. And what if two teachers disagree on what is best for your child? And what if some of your child's teachers are awful and others are wonderful? You know this will be the case and that as a result, your child will at least love some subjects and hate others. But the problem with saying your child's education is primarily the teacher's responsibility is that this is too near to saying it is everyone's responsibility. And the problem with something being everyone's responsibility is that this in practical terms means it is nobody's responsibility. If your child's education is everyone's responsibility and nobody is all at the same time, that is close enough to saying your child is on their own. Sink or swim, little Johnny and Susie. That is the real world most people are talking about, I am afraid. 
But I feel like I am watching a wildlife documentary sometimes when I hear parents talk about education. Will the baby, will the beast, or water buffalo become food for the lion, leopard, or cheetah? Or will he or she make a successful escape this time? It all depends on what the herd does. But more often than not, the herd just runs off and leaves its weakest and slowest member to fend for themselves. The herd mentality is soon enough just everyone trying to save their own skin, running away from the predatory teeth and claws. And despite the proven collective strength of the horns and hooves and the supposed strengths in numbers, and the supposed strength in numbers, the instinct is typically to flee rather than confront. In theory, one would expect all the lions and leopards and cheetahs to go hungry before ever again feeding on a wildebeest or water buffalo. And when the wildebeest and water buffalo have the presence of mind to unite against their foe, this is what happens. The predators go hungry. But more often than not, all that saves a defenseless calf from being a big cat's lunch is the protective parental instinct of the mother, charging headlong to break up the chase. In any event, we should not be looking to the animal kingdom to learn how to parent and educate our children. Enough of nature's mothers and fathers eat their young when given half a chance. Yet, if we look to God, in whose image we were created, we find a better way. Consider what is said regarding Jesus in the Gospel according to Luke in the 17th verse of the first chapter, as the prophet Malachi is quoted. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for Yahweh a people prepared. We should pray for such today in our time and place. And when we speak in generalities concerning the problems of fatherlessness and how such is a common thread with all school shooters and with so many in America's prisons and with so many other social and political ills beside, we should appreciate the power for good inherent to God turning the hearts of the fathers back to their children. But then again, it is one thing to agree in general about what other people in the aggregate should do and how much better such would make the world. And we can wax eloquent all we like about trends and culture and broader society. But when it comes to our sphere, our household, our children, what then? We cannot control what society does and we cannot single-handedly change culture. Yet we can, little by little, affect the real world around us when we each individually accept responsibility for how we order our own household and choose to pursue wisdom and righteousness in the conducting of our own affairs. In other words, we will make this real world everyone is always talking about a better place if we each take personal responsibility for our children's education. So, that is... Chapter 4, Whose Responsibility Childhood Education Is, from my forthcoming book, And This Is Why We Homeschool. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're curious about the rest of the book, I would strongly encourage you to send me an email. When the book is released, I will be happy to send you a copy. Yeah, you'll have to pay for it, but I'll be happy to send you a copy. <laughs> or at least a link to where it can be bought online. I haven't yet decided whether I will self-publish or whether I will uh, seek out a publishing company. I will seek out a publishing company, I should say, but I'm not sure yet uh, who or on what terms might be uh, interested in 
publishing this book for me. I've never done this before. Like I said, uh, this manuscript completion, that was the first and necessary part of it. You can't publish a book you haven't written. So I wrote the book and now I've got to figure out how to get it published. So if you have any ideas on that, if you know of somebody who is in publishing or who would be good to speak with about this, please do reach out as well. You can reach me, as always, at garrettmullet at gmail.com. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-M-U-L-L-E-T at gmail.com. So with that, we'll close this episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was beneficial to you. And uh, God bless.